It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sienkiewicz, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www megaconvention.com that's megacon 2014 be there hey everybody uh paul spataro here this is an episode of back to the bins that i recorded with my friends jim deets and russ latham uh, i just want to give you a heads up on it that we did have some internet problems as we were recording uh, and i'm going to try and clear those up as best as i can in editing but uh if there's anything any area where, where it just uh, breaks up on you, please bear with us because the overall conversation was really good and they're two good guys and I think you'll enjoy the show. Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined today by two people who you probably didn't expect unless you've read the show notes already. Uh, returning from once before is my friend Jim Dietz. Hello. And for a first time on the show we have Mr. Russell Latham. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. If if you don't already know, Jim and Russ are both from the Legion of Dudes, from the HHWLOD po- podcast network, uh, and I would call them friends of the show and friends in general. So I asked uh, them to come on and uh, do a crossover with us. Uh, I had also asked Johnny M, also of the Legion of Dudes, to go to come on, and uh, unfortunately Johnny's just got crazy busy right now and had to uh, respectfully decline. But we will get him on here one day. Yeah, he's so busy. He has time. He has a tough time making it on our show. So. Yeah, the funny thing is, uh, Johnny lives about 15 minutes from me, and grew up in the town that I live in. And we've talked on numerous occasions, and we keep talking about, yeah, we'll get together, we'll have lunch, whatever. But it's been about three or four years, and we still have yet to get together face to face. So, <laughs> who knows when it, when it's gonna happen? He actually works right across the street from the high school that my son goes to, and used How to funny. teach in that high school. How funny. Wow. 
So I will drag him on here one day. <laughs> Even Small York- world. Yeah, really. Well, let's do, you, you remember you guys did the uh, – you had some sort of sale where you were selling a bunch of old books and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah, I, yeah. I had bought a couple of them. And when I sent the email saying, you know, yeah, I'm interested in this book with my address, he, he, he sent me back one saying, hey, dude, you live in East Meadow? That's where I grew up. <laughs> so nice. it, it's definitely a small world. No doubt. I'm hoping to reunite with him uh, at New York Comic Con this year. Yeah, we, so. we, we talked about getting together at New York Comic Con, but each time that it's happened, it's kind of been that I was there one or two days, and he was there one of the other days that I wasn't there. So it still uh-huh. hasn't worked out. At some point, one day. Uh, so what do you guys got going on the uh, LOD end of the HHW LOD network right now? Well, we just got done recording our duties episode, which is our year-end ep- uh, you know, wrap-up episode, our awards you know, for best of in comics and movies and Blu-rays and video games and all, all kinds of geeky stuff. Uh, that's probably the big thing we have going on. We have a, a podcast now for the Sleepy Hollow show that's out, which uh, um, uh, Aaron and Brandon are doing. That's really cool. Uh, I just launched a podcast for um, Action Lab Comics. Uh, I'm doing uh, social media work for them now. Uh, they're an indie comic company. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, Paul. But they Sean do, Pryor. Uh, that's right. Uh, Princeless and Skyward. We have a lot of really great books. But I'm doing a, a twice um, or every two weeks uh, podcast uh, for them to promote their books. And uh, Johnny, actually, and Russ just started uh, a journey through James Bond. They both got the uh, James Bond 50 uh, Blu-ray set. But uh, didn't you just get the fifty the Bond 50 set for uh, Christmas, Russ? I did. I did the yeah. long-awaited Bond fifty set that I've been jonesing for for a year. So now I, I, been, I heard yeah, that yeah. first episode, and uh, I, I love Bond, so I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing that as it comes out. Especially since you're going to do it movie by movie. Yeah, there's a break. Uh, Shield is going to be on hiatus for a couple weeks, so I think John and I are going to take the typical Shield night and do Doctor No. So that should be up pretty quick. We we did a one episode, a one-off uh, with myself, Scott Gardner, Andy Leyland, and uh, Luke Giaconetti, uh called "Stirred Not Shaken." Uh, eh. Just a one one episode, and we did we started with the beginning of Bond, and we got through the Roger Moore years. It took us about three and a half hours to do that, uh, and we still planned on going back and covering Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, but. Uh, to date, we haven't been able to do that, but uh, I, I look forward to you guys coming out with your stuff. Yeah, you're going to have to have me on when uh, you get, get to Moonraker. <laughs> yeah, well, like, Roger, like you, Russell, I, my favorite is uh, Connery. So, Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, not not even close for me. Uh, what else? I, I just, just for what it's worth on this, on your network, I really in, I, I enjoy most of the stuff, so I don't want to just make it sound like I'm limiting it, but uh, I, I really like to put on the uh, really bs show i uh, enjoy that in my car when i'm when i have a long ride that's usually a good show to listen to and uh i like when you guys do real heroes a lot yeah there's like the lost episode that i'm i've i've got done editing finally oh wow uh, that'll go yeah that'll it'll go up this week for sure um on cowboys and aliens but we had aaron uh just has some weird audio glitch it was really bizarre because normally everything's pretty solid and uh, something was just weird with his setup, so I've been really trying to massage that audio. And finally, I'm just like, look, it's just got to go up. So so that's like the long-lost episode that'll be up soon before we get to uh, Corman's Fantastic gonna, Four. As I was going to say, we're going to follow that up with Roger Corman's version of Fantastic Four, so that'll be a, 
That's going to be an interesting one to hear because that that's yeah. that's a movie that I kind of feel. If you've actually watched it, it's it's not nearly as bad as the reputation. Although nobody's going to argue that it's a good movie, <laughs> but it's not as bad <laughs> as the reputation would have you think. It has I agree. Certain flaws. <laughs> oh yes, there's no question. Yes. <laughs> but 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 I think you know people want to lump it together with movies like you know Catwoman and and you know the, the Steel. Uh, no. th- things of that nature, and I don't, I don't think it belongs in that same category. I think that we should almost do it as a commentary track because the entire movie is available for free on YouTube. So that's something we'll be up to, yeah. All right, so uh, you know when we had you on last time, Jim, we never got around to asking you, uh, you know, what's your, what's your comic origin, what's your history. Uh, one of my earliest memories is being about six or seven years old. Going with my grandmother to the grocery store, and uh, here I am going to really age, uh, date myself or whatever. You got uh, so don't worry. They had a uh, comic book machine. It was like you put in a quarter, I think it was, or a quarter and a nickel, and the comic would come out. And it was kind of like a, just a regular like vending machine for chips or whatever, but it had comic books in it. And I was allowed to have one every time we went shopping if I helped, <laughs> if I was good. So well, no. I, uh, me what being was, a crafty little I'm sorry, was the price for that the cover price of the book, or was there some additional yeah. fee because it was from a vending machine? No, it was the cover price of the book. Um, but the funny the funny part was that in, in my crafty little like six-year-old mind or whatever, um, I knew I was only going to get one comic, and I didn't want to waste it on just one character or one hero, unless it was Batman, because you know, he's Batman. <laughs> but <laughs> in any other case, I would get a team book. So I grew up reading Justice League, Justice Society, uh, on the DC side, you know, Batman and the Outsiders, all that stuff. And on the Marvel side, I'm, the Defenders is like my number one favorite team uh, of all time. Uh, but the X-Men are probably number two. Avengers, I always got the team books, so I've always mm-hmm. been a big team book guy. And that's like where my comics origins started. It wasn't until like the early 80s that I really like took comic book seriously as an artistic medium though like when i first read you know miracle man or v for vendetta or stuff like that so by then i was in my teen you know sullen teen years so. <laughs> yeah I, I, like i said i'm a couple of years older than you are so i started in the early 70s but i primarily jumped in on the marvel side of things and didn't really discover the dc stuff till later i mean i knew of the dc heroes from the you know, TV shows and cartoons and, and such. But as far as the actual comics themselves, uh, I had seen I had seen and read some of them early on. But when I first started to take comics seriously, it was all Marvel. The oldest comic I own that I remember owning is um, Warlock number seven. It was uh, the Jim Starlin relaunch of Warlock. Mm-hmm. After the power of Warlock, it, like, it would go Kane and kind of dwindled out. Yes, Imagine that being your very first comic book. Because like, it's that, that really tripped out Jim Starlin art with the in-betweener and like the, the Living Tribunal and like the Magus and all the Gamora and all this like weird cosmic stuff. I mean, that's like the earliest comic I remember reading. So, Like I said, I remember a couple of DCs from really early on, but the first comic that I took seriously was uh, Aunt May was marrying Doc Ock, Spider-Man number 131. Mm. I still have my original copy sitting probably 15 feet from where I am right now. Is that Russ Andrew or uh, John Romita? That would be Russ, An- Russ Andrew. Russ Andrew. And uh, I believe the cover is Gil Kane, if I'm remembering correctly. 
Uh, how about you, Russ? What's your uh, comic origin? So the the first comics I remember getting were there was a, a girl that lived across the street from us. She was older and was selling subscriptions as part of like some school fundraiser thing. And Star Wars had come out, and my mom knew we loved Star Wars, so she bought a year's worth of subscription to Marvel Star Wars. And I think the first issue we got was issue 10. And, and so most of those by now are, are really beat up. I still have a couple uh, issues of them. Some of them just flat out disappeared. Um, I've managed to fill in a lot of gaps since then. Uh, and I've got a few issues here and there. Like I think I got an issue of Hulk randomly and then like something for the Avengers. Um, but it wasn't until, funny enough, uh, me and a, some friends of mine were into the Marvel uh, superheroes role-playing game. So it was like D&D for, for Marvel. Mm-hmm. And one of them had like this mutant handbook. It was like a source book for all the mutant stuff. And it talked about you know all the stuff in Days of Future Past and Project Wide Awake. And I was really fascinated by that. And I thought, well... The, the the manuals like the, the the adventure guides were you know fairly expensive i'm like what if i just bought the comics and use those to to role play with <laughs> and i pretty much so the first comic i picked up for for x-men was 194 and i was hooked from there on and ever since that day um i've been pretty much going forward and backward in time uh to filling in my collection and i pretty much abandoned the role playing side of it and just got sucked into the comic side of it uh, and from there, I, I just got into like Avengers and some Cap, and I, I, I really stayed away from most of the DC stuff until uh, John Byrne's Superman Man of Steel miniseries, which I picked up off the racks. Uh, I picked up Crisis off the racks, uh, and then I kind of got out of comics for a while, and it was the death of Superman that really brought me back, and ever since then, I've been pretty much full in on both sides. That's uh, that's pretty, pretty cool, because I also... Got. I mean, again, I'm a couple of years older, so I stayed in it longer than you. But uh, I got in. I got out of it in the mid '80s, and the death of Superman is exactly what pulled me back in. So that's I, weird because around the time of the death of Superman is when I got out. <laughs> it was like that. <laughs> the, all that. Cro- you know, all the. Well, the hologram chromium covers with the 24 part crossovers in X Men and all that kind of stuff, and you know the speculative market and all that crap. I got out for a little while. But it was um, actually uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman that got me back in, like, 1999, 2000. Yeah, I, I never fell victim to the, you know, to the, to the hype that these comics are going to be worth a lot of money because they have chromium covers or whatever. That, oh, yeah. I, I, you know, that never fooled me. Uh, but, you know, the one thing, like, when you get in and you collect, and like, like you started to say, Russ, where, where you, you know, you, you're going backwards, uh, looking back in time to when I first got into it, and, and there were a couple of series that I really tried to focus on, and one of my prime ones was Spider-Man. And what I was doing was I had started at issue 131, and I was buying all the new ones as they came out. But then I started working backwards from 131. So, you know, I'm looking for 130, looking for 129, and working my way back. And if I had any idea of what I was doing, I would have started at issue number one and worked my way up to 130. Yeah, because yeah. it was actually... It would have been crazy expensive, but compared to today's prices, it was affordable back then. Uh, I bought, like, I remember issues in the 90s of Spider-Man were a buck each. Uh, I, bought an, I bought, I think, issue 50. I think it cost me five bucks at the time. Oh, wow. So, you know well, what I mean? Now, I mean, the price now it'd, be five, it'd be five bills. <laughs> yeah, well, I still have it. So if anybody has five bills they want to give me for it, I would seriously consider parting with it at that point. I got back 
at least at the time, because eventually when I stopped buying, I, I you know I didn't keep a solid run from then on. But I had I'd started at 131. I would say I went solid run probably to close to issue 300 before I broke away. Maybe you know somewhere before that, but I don't know how far before that. But I had gotten back as far as I think I have a consecutive run from issue say 47 up, and then I have a few lower than that as well. So nice. But, but I, I only wish, like I said, that I had, I had started from the lower numbers and worked my way up from there. My earliest issue is number 25, I believe. So, but whatever the case may be, it would, it would have been cool to, you know, to have a copy of number one in my collection somewhere. That would be, uh, you know, the crown jewel. Yeah. Unfortunately, my crown jewel, I guess, is Giant Size X-Men number one. I don't know if that, when I say unfortunately, oh. it's, it's only because, for me, it's unfortunate because it's a book that came out that I bought off the stands. Wow. Uh, it would have been nice to have acquired something, you know, like a real keepsake that I searched for and found, you know? Yeah, that's my Holy Grail book. And I've, I've thought about at times just kind of working on a strategy where I would find a really low, low graded copy, but, but slabbed. So it would retain its value, and then I could just, you know, slowly add more money to it, sell the the lower grade copy, even if I just got what I paid for it, and then, you know, just kind of work my way up to a decent, unslabbed, uh, you know, but in fairly decent condition reader copy. So yeah, I'm I'm curious. I, I've never even looked into it, and I would say my copy, you know, I mean, I I read it quite a few times when it was new, so uh, you know, it, it's it's fairly beat up i mean it's not in terrible condition but it's been it's it's clearly been read a few times and i wonder what a, what a copy like that would even go for i don't even know but i, I don't know i mean i've seen them i've I, seen them at cons and they're you know dog-eared and yellowed and maybe a little bit of a of a tear on the cover and they're about a hundred bucks like on the low end and then for a copy that's that's just got some wear but but no like real physical defects i've seen them for like two to three hundred ungraded Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, probably what I'd be looking at with mine. I, I'm thinking somewhere in that range. There's a guy who owns a comic book store here in Pittsburgh, Copacetta Comics, uh, Bill, who told me the story of how in the early 80s, late 70s, he bought, he hoarded like a whole bunch of issues of Giant Size Number 1, and he's been selling them off bit by bit ever since. Wow. You can make a living yeah, like, just on that. Yeah, well, that's how he got the money to start his comic book shop and stuff by selling off copies of Giant Size X Number One that he, you know, gathered, found it like cons and stuff for cheap back in the day. Mm. Kind of just bought a whole bunch of them, you know. And I, I also have, you know, I have uh, Hulk One Eighty and One Eighty One, which I had purchased new off the stand, but for whatever reason, I had divested myself of One Eighty One at one time. And then I had picked it, picked it up again at a uh, comic store where they would actually write the prices in, in the comics code box in a grease pen. So I have a big yeah. 50 cents written in the, uh, in, the, in the comics code box on my Hulk 181. Mm. So oh, I'm, sure, wow. I'm, I'm sure that diminishes the value somewhat. But you know, at this point, you know, and sometimes we've talked about it on the show. It's you know, you wonder what what you're going to one day do with these books anyway, because I don't I don't have the I don't have it in me to put them all on eBay and just sell them off. And while my son shows some interest in them and has a box, you know, has a long box in his in his room and stuff, he doesn't have the uh, the love of them that I do. So 
you know, one day when, when I'm not here, I don't know that he's going to all of a sudden say, oh, I want these, you know, these 7,000 books in my room. So we'll see what happens with all of that, I guess, down the road. You got kids, yeah. Russ? Yeah, actually, um, I got I have two stepchildren that I've pretty much raised since they were very small. Um, and one of them has two kids of his own. So um, I've, I've got another I've got another generation that uh, hopefully I could I could leave all this stuff I've accumulated to. Have they shown any interest in the, at this point of uh, of jumping now onto my son, it? Now my son just like he thinks it's kind of cool, but he doesn't really have any uh, spot for it. And and the grandkid is just he's only two, so he's he he doesn't know what's what's going on yet. He likes he likes the superheroes, just you know at a high level. So I'm hoping one day he as he grows up he uh, he acclimates to it. And uh, I've got like a nephew, you know, a couple nephews and stuff that are that are fans of the love like Spider-Man and stuff. So part of it, I think I'm going to take some of these large runs I have of some of these books. I'm going to I'm going to bind them and um, and just give them to the kids so they have and so they can kind of read them and, and they won't get too beat up and they'll hopefully last long enough. Mm. And then the other ones I'll either sell in bulk or trade them or give them to a children's hospital or something like that, you know, just because I've, I've just so much, you know, junk that i bought in the 90s that was kind of cool to read but you know now i just don't have any i don't have any emotional attachment to any of that stuff so it's funny i um i donated a lot of my uh, floppies i accumulated over the years except for even the ones i really really wanted to keep uh to the two museum here in pittsburgh uh for, them, for their outreaches and their giveaways and stuff so i um i'm down to like things i could put on a bookshelf or digitals so yeah yeah i mean when once once you start having a digital collection you start realizing wow i don't need to take up all the space in my house anymore right yeah, that was the I, other thing you know yeah. even with the farmhouse or whatever it's just it's it's a lot of room yeah and it's also just so easy to manage them you know you want to read a book it and you, you can throw it on the ipad and and you know just read it and you know the beauty of that is too like if uh, you know if i'm wide awake but i know it's time to go to bed and i could sit down with my tablet on on my bed and i could read a book in the dark because the because it's self-illuminating, and and then when I you know when I start feeling worn out, just turn off the tablet and go right to sleep. It's not you know it's a lot easier than reading the hard copies. Yeah, that's pretty much me every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know the, these these titles are getting rebooted all the time. I've I've kind of I think I've finally drawn drawn a line in the sand that um, now anything and I've been collecting every X Men title of everything forever, but I think. Finally, now they've rebooted it to the point where once the, these titles are done, that's it. I am 100% done. It's all going to be digital from this point forward. I just wish that they would see the light on digital books and the pricing on them because I still yeah, feel like yeah. if they made them more affordable, they could sell enough digital copies. They can they can start to rekindle interest and sell enough digital copies and make up the difference on just volume and advertising. Yeah, I'm really hoping that somebody, because I buy most of my stuff on the 99 cent sales. I, I watch out, especially the Marvel stuff on Mondays and Fridays and then just in between. And I hope that they're really looking over that analysis and seeing just how much of a spike those books are. And I think, if nothing else, that's going to maybe drive price down because they'll see how much more they could sell uh, by doing that. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. Didn't didn't Mark Wade do something where he was giving away free copies of his digital series? Yeah. Uh, with, with the total thought of, 
if I can give away digital ser- digital copies and I can see enough distribution, I will be able to make my money just through the advertising and not have to charge anything for the book. Yeah, all of our Action Lab comics actually are ninety nine cents for single issues. Um, that is, I think, going to be the price point of the future. I mean, we only have you know we have minimal ads in our books, uh, but ninety nine cents I think is a, is a price that you know seems really reasonable and something. I mean, with iTunes, you know, the songs are ninety nine cents. It's the price that's people are used to paying for digital content. So. Well, what I've always said is 99 cents is the price at which people will not pirate because they'll say, I'd rather just get it legitimately at that price. Right. Yeah. That's and it's, point. it's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, what? I would even, I would even accept like 150, maybe 175 if, if it was, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, for me, like you were saying, Paul, it's, it's a space thing. Like I just in gym too, I just don't like, at some point, I can't. I'm not like uh, a John Mayo or a Bob Bretall, you know. If, if you know, if you know those guys. Yes, I do. You know, they have they have hundreds of of boxes. I mean, I have lunch with John Mayo uh, somewhat frequently, and and, and uh, you know, we talk about it all the time. But I, I just don't have that much space where I could keep hundreds of long boxes around. Uh, it's just not practical. Right. And it's at some point, you just you just got to give up the ghost because, you know. Uh, an SD card is, you know, 50 bucks and, you know, will fit in your wallet. And, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. you know, uh, 10,000 books uh, don't exactly do that. <laughs> yeah. Or you could end up running a you know, storage space like Donnie Salvo. Yeah. yeah. Well, did, yeah. didn't uh, didn't Bob, I don't I don't know what the final outcome of it was, but didn't Bob Retall have people coming over to his house from Guinness uh, Book of World yeah. Records yep. that he he might have had the largest solo solo owned collection of of comics and that would be not counting you know two of any one issue that right. individual you know did did you, do you know what what came of that Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's it's certified out. I'm I'm pretty sure he's he's in there as the the largest collection. Bob was my uh, my first uh, comic podcasting experience. I guested for two episodes of uh, Back Issue Spotlight on the comic book page. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. John lives in Austin, and uh, so I work in Austin, and I live, you know, a little little further south than Austin. But yeah, there's a couple of us that uh, that we don't get together as much as we'd like to. But yeah, every every so often we'll get together, have lunch, or especially during the con season, uh, we'll we'll get together. And- For Guy Gardner podcast. I got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner podcasts. The internet is for and sometimes Kyle Rayner podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner podcasts. Just one of the guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libs.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle.
it's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. And we're back. Uh, normally we do Marvel, then DC, then indie, but in uh, deference to my uh, special guests today, we're going to reverse the order and do indie, DC, Marvel. And I took the indie for today, and I chose Invincible number five. And the thing about this one that just shocks me is... I can't believe this book is 10 years old already. But, that is crazy. Oh, I know. It, oh. It, it's amazing how quickly it goes by. I, I read Invincible, and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but I read it. Uh, I had taken the two, not compendiums. I don't know what the bigger trades are, the ones that have 18 issues in each. I don't know what they call those. Uh, but I had taken those out of the library, and I read the first two of them, and that's where that was my first experience with Invincible. And I found it to be a, a, a pretty quick and entertaining read uh i'm tempted to even say i like it a little better than kirkman's work on uh, the walking dead which i also like very much uh but it, it just I, I don't know there's something about it that that's got a certain charm that uh that you don't have in the walking dead because the walking dead is always just so intense vince ball always kind of reminded me of the early uh spider-man yes i, I think i think that yeah, was what he I'm was sure shooting. that's intentional yeah but that's what I always liked about it, though. That was something I always really enjoyed about that comic, is that it had that kind of flavor of those old Spider-Man comics, but it was, it definitely had an edge to it. Like, the violence definitely has an edge that those comics didn't have, and I don't know, it just was really, uh, I, I, it really stuck out for me for a long time. I can't believe it's 10 years old already, though. Yeah, well, the cover date on it is June of 2003, so it's actually 10 and a half years now. Uh, and it's got a 2.95 cover price, and the cover has a star field, and Invincible's kind of floating upside down in the in the star field, and he's saying "ouch," uh, and doesn't really explain what's going on. But it does. It is an intriguing cover, and it kind of makes you want to see some more. Uh, the interior art is by Corey Walker, and I did not confirm it, but based upon just the appearance, it looks like this might also be a Walker cover. Uh, yeah, I think it is. It'd yeah, be a safe it, assumption. There's a small, by his uh, right shoulder, uh, there's, it looks like it says C-W-O-Z. So I assume that's Corey Walker, and I don't know what Oz is. Uh, but I assume it's Corey Walker something. Uh, the story is written by Robert Kirkman. It is illustrated by Corey Walker and colored by Bill Crabtree. And the story opens up with Invincible in his civilian uh, clothes in his bedroom laying on the floor and doing some homework and his phone rings and it's his father who is what's his father's name omni-man i believe yeah on on the phone and he's telling him basically that uh he needs him to cover something for him because he's uh he's taking care of a, a real big threat himself and that there's somebody headed straight for earth and that he needs to stop him uh and he also tells him uh, when he goes out that he needs to tell his mom uh, to serve steak that night because either they're going to be celebrating something or it won't matter. Uh, so Invincible gets dressed, goes out his window, and flies off. Uh, his biggest concern as he's leaving is how he's going to be able to deal with the fact that you can't breathe in outer space. And his father says, well, I could hold my breath for two weeks, so I would imagine you could do it for an hour or so without any problem. And he heads off into outer space. 
and then he's a pretty good distance from Earth. You see him with the star field behind him, and Earth is pretty small uh, behind him as well. And he's just kind of looking around and wondering what to do when all of a sudden somebody comes up behind him and basically punches him in the back. And he's communicating with them telepathically, and he says, you're early. Uh, And then Invincible comes after him. The two kind of grapple back and forth for a while. And uh, Invincible kind of gets the best of him after a while, uh, driving him into the moon. But then he kind of calls for a timeout, and they start communicating. And again, they're doing so telepathically. And it's Alan the Alien, who eventually, if my memory is right, becomes a a recurring character in the series. Yeah, he comes back later, and it ends up being an ally of Invincible. Yeah, and and his basically he finds out that his purpose is to test the uh, the champions of different planets to make sure that they're able to handle themselves, and he just travels from planet to planet fighting those those champions and then raiding them, and he goes every every so many years he comes back and apparently Omni Man has faced him several times to to prove his worth, and then he tells him uh, yeah I, I come to Orath every once in a while. And uh, Invincible tells him, Orath? Where the hell is Orath? This is Earth. <laughs> and then uh, Alan look, is looking at some sort of a palm device, and he says, oh, crap. Because <laughs> basically he's been coming to the wrong planet for several years. And he just kind of makes friends with Invincible, shakes his hand, and then takes off. At that point, we have a really cool shot of Invincible standing on the moon. And again, we have a pretty dense star field. And the Earth is off in the distance, and he's just kind of admiring how cool it, the uh, view is. And it's a double-page spread that's really nice. And at that point, he goes back home, and he's having dinner with his parents. So obviously, Omni-Man was successful in whatever he did. And they discuss what went on. And his father's impressed with what he did, and eventually kind of grudgingly admits that he uh, he did well in in speaking to uh, Alan rather than just engaging him in the fight the whole time and at that point Invincible goes up to his bedroom and is pretty wiped until he realizes he never finished his homework and he has to sit down and do it and that's the end of our story I really enjoy this book I think it's so cool the art has a simple elegance to it uh, especially that that one shot with him looking at the earth in the uh, background the story is simple and yet fairly sophisticated at the same time uh, I don't know if that does it justice but that's kind of the way I feel about it that's and, a good way to describe the art too it's it, it's like deceptively simple art yeah you know I mean? yeah it's just it's well well illustrated and, and well drawn and well told I I, li- I usually like a slightly more realistic style not not too realistic I'm not talking Alex Ross realistic I'm talking say you know uh George Perez type, which we'll talk more about later. Uh, but this has just got a real appeal to it just the same, even though it's a slightly more cartoony. Uh, like I said, it has a kind of a simple elegance to it. Uh, it's it got clean animated. lines. I'm sorry? It feels animated. You know, like it, like it would fit right into a uh, you know, Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. And, and, and it would... It would probably do really well as a, as a Saturday morning cartoon, this story in particular, because, it, it, like I said, it's kind of a simple story, but when you think about it, there's kind of layers to it, with the whole Alan the Alien and what his purpose is, and then what's going on with Omni-Man. There's, there's, there's more to it than what you just see on its surface. 
and and even though it's pretty quick read, uh, it, it it's kind of satisfying. Yeah, I, I always find this reads really well in trade. That's how I read the the first few uh, um, like volumes in hardcover, just like you from the library. Actually, I, I got them there. Um, but it's just it's just always been a really strong title, and I, I well you know Walking Dead uh, you know if you want you really can, comparing the two is like apples and oranges. I mean they're very different books. Oh, it must be like I almost feel like Kirkman when he gets tired of writing one like switches and writes the other because they're so different. Mm-hmm. I find with both series, what I end up doing is I read it for a while and I get caught up, and then I put it aside. And then there'll be 10 or 15 issues before I read it again. And I, and I find that's the most satisfying way to read them both because they, they both are generally quick reads. And if you read it on a month-to-month basis, I don't think you feel as satisfied. I don't know if that makes sense or not. but No, that makes sense. I understand what you're saying. It, it's, when, when you read it in bunches, you really feel like there's some substance there. But like I said, on a month-to-month basis, I don't know if, if I would feel the same way. And I've never, I don't think I've ever read either series on a month-to-month basis. So I can't say that from experience. But I just enjoy the, I, I enjoy the uh, the binge reading of those two series. Right. Like binge watching. Yeah, exactly. It's well, it's it's becoming the, the the way of the world right now. With you know everything's available in bunches now. That's a good thing, though. Yeah, I I enjoy it. I mean, there there is something to be said for the appreciation we had as kids when something would only be on TV once a year and when you only had so many channels to choose from. But I think it's foolish to try and argue that that was better than what you have now. Yeah. It's like back back in the day when you didn't know anything about movies, too, until they came to the theater. Mm-hmm. Well, that, lucky... that I think is better. I, I think it's better to be able well, to Well, I don't know. I mean, do you re- I, yeah, I... I... I remember, like, uh, before I saw Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the only thing I'd ever read about it was, like, a blurb in Starlog magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, like a one-column blurb or something. Yeah. I, mean, it's just, I knew it had it's... Han Solo. That was it. Right. That was all and I was... needed to know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, uh... I didn't know anything about it when it first opened. I didn't know anything about it, and one of my friends went to see it on opening night, and then I was talking to him the following day, and he, and he was telling me, this movie is so cool. you got to see this movie. He's already got his arch villain in it. And it's, you know, like, you, you have to go see this. And we, he went again the next night with me because I needed somebody to go see the movie with. But, you know, to go into that blind without anybody having spoiled anything for you is, to me, that that's light years ahead of already knowing what's going to go on. And if that had come out now, I mean, we would have had featurettes on all the stunts and we would have seen all the sequences ahead of time and... You know, on set, on location with Raider. You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. sort of, we would have been dissected before it even got out of the gate. You know? Yeah, I mean, between Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, it's not as if they had a, you know, a team of unknowns making it. This wasn't an unheralded movie. And it's yet, just the way things went back then, we weren't bombarded with information on everything twenty four seven. Exactly. You know, exactly. It wasn't a twenty four hour news cycle at all, and. If you wanted to watch something, you either sat down and t- in front of the TV when it was on, or you bought a VCR and taped it. The first yeah. point where I could remember that really becoming prevalent was in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And, I mean, we didn't have the internet like we do now, but we did have, you know, ardent Star Wars fans and fanzines and different things that were coming out. So there was still news dissemination and speculation as to what 
Return of the Jedi was going to be. So I do remember that being, you know, very heavy as far as news and advance word and, you know, what, what, what we were going to see and what we might see. I remember sitting there reading, you know, articles in magazines for hours about, you know, what people thought might happen, some of which ended up being true and some of which couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, it was the same way with the prequels, though. Everybody was like, oh, well, this story and then the Clone Wars and blah, blah, blah. And it turned out to be nothing, unfortunately, yeah. like what we wanted. So. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with these the new three. Yes, it will be. Although the, the rumors I'm hearing now are encouraging that they want this movie to focus on uh, the original three. So it would be like a, fair, uh, uh, you know, a fitting farewell for them as they transition into the younger characters. So yeah. I could see that. Yeah, if if they make it as a a bridge to the new characters, that's fine. If they make it a Luke Leia and Han movie, with them all at the point in lives where they are now, I don't think it'll fly. Mm. But, you know, it remains to be seen. Who knows what yeah. what they can do? It, it it's the interesting thing I heard, and I don't remember who was talking about it. For all I know, I might have heard it on the BS show. Uh, somebody was talking the other day, and I heard they said. Uh, that when the sale went through, uh, part of the deal was that Lucas had written three treatments for sequels. And then he didn't want to sell them as part of it, but they insisted that the sale wasn't going to happen unless he did include them. So for all the talk, assuming that, that what I heard is true, for all the talk that he, he was done and he wasn't going to do anymore, that, that's not necessarily true because he was writing treatments for sequels anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to, you know, you, you never know what the truth is because they just tell you what they want you to hear. That is true. That, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any more thoughts? Any specific thoughts on, on this book? I'm to steer us back? Book. People should read it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I started, uh, or we started uh, two episodes ago or three episodes ago instituting a uh, thing with a guy who brings the book and the other guys if they want, but Specifically, the guy who brings the book kind of gives it a letter grade, uh, as, as you would a school project. And the standard is uh, a C is exactly that. It's an average book, you know, not great, not terrible, something you'd, you know, you're interested in reading, but, you know, it's not anything out of the ordinarily good or bad. Uh, I would probably give this book a B to a B plus. Because I think it's really solid. It makes you want to read more, and it's an, an enjoyable read. And I think uh, writing and artwork are right about at the same level on it. So that's about what I would give it. Maybe even an A minus. I'd definitely give it a B. The I probably say the A's or A minuses for later on in the storyline, like where we find out the stuff about his father and uh, all that good stuff uh, going on. Because that's where it really seemed to kick into high for me, mm-hmm. as far as you know the series is concerned. I um. But yeah, definitely a solid B. I'll go for the hat trick. I'd, I'd give it a B as well. I I think, you know, some somebody may read this now and have a little bit different opinion on it. But this was pretty. This Kirkman style of writing, I guess, was a little bit kind of in the Bendis school. But um, I, I think I think Kirkman did did Bendis much better than Bendis did. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, it it just it was kind of a breath of fresh air that writing style and just everything being kind of uh, you know simple is probably not the right term but just kind of light and 
I love the callbacks, you know, in that book and just, you know, things will like in this, you know, we'll see this character come in and we'll see the repercussions of that way down the road. And, th- and that book did did that very, very well uh, overall. But, yeah, I'd, uh, solid B for me. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I can get what you're saying about the Bendis comparison. And I'm I can't say that's wrong, but I definitely think there's a difference in that. Bendis has a tendency to occasionally write books where absolutely nothing happens. Uh, and I yeah. don't think Kirkman really does that. In fact, sometimes Kirkman actually moves it along too quickly, uh, and, and you wonder where he's going to go next. Uh, but, but there is that breezy style of reading that yeah. I, would, I would put to Bendis and him, where you, you can kind of fly through a book really fast. But I still feel more satisfied when I finish a Kirkman book than I do a Bendis book in most cases. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. They both like killing people off, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The, the, well, the difference is when, when Kirkman kills him off, he can leave him dead. Or, oh, yeah. When, when Bendis kills him off, you know, usually they have to come back. And, uh, I, you know, sometimes you automatically think of the worst things. I think of the way Bendis killed off Hawkeye and how terrible that was. Yeah. yeah that was, that was one, of, one of the weakest comic book deaths I've ever seen. My arrows are on fire. <laughs> Not this way, no. Yeah, Yeah, bad stuff. All right, so uh, why don't we move on to our DC book now? And Jim, you're bringing us DC today, aren't you? I am. I am Johnny DC today. I'm bringing you Justice League of America number 185. This was the third part of a three-part story. Um, Back in the day, for those who aren't informed or aren't hip to it or whatever, there used to be pretty much a yearly crossover of Justice League and Justice Society, where they would meet, you know, they'd come over from Earth 2 and have a potluck dinner or whatever, but it always ended in trouble, (laughs) no matter what happened. It was a friendly game of Canasta, and now the the multiverse is at rest. So every time they got together, it was it was trouble. I remember that uh, Paul and I were talking earlier about one where the, the Justice League, Justice Society, and the Legion of Superheroes all took on Mordrew. I think that was Jerry Conway and Dick Dillon on the art. I think um, you're right. Uh, I, there was I, there there have been uh, you know the Justice League, Justice Society, you know, Crisis on Multiple Earths, you know, fighting against the Earth three supervillains. We're now in the Forever Evil craziness over at DC. So it's like a long, it was a long-standing tradition to have these crossovers every now and again. And this one not only had the Justice League and Justice Society crossed over, but also at the same time DC was trying to relaunch the New Gods characters um, with the Jerry Conway and, again, Dick Dillon book um, with new somewhat new character designs. That's why Orion has the funky costume in this with the cowl and the O. On it, rather than you know what we're you know the helmet we normally see him in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of part of their redesign and relaunch of the new gods, because uh, Kirby had gone back to Marvel and they wanted to do something new with the characters. So that's one of the reasons they tied it into the Justice League Justice Society. You know, their biggest selling book to you know to kind of punctuate the relaunch. But we lucked out because we got a really cool three-part story written by Jerry Conway and the art by George Perez and Frank McLaughlin. This is early Perez. This is uh, December 1980. But, I mean, it, you can see the George Perez-ness in, in the art already. Because, I, mean, you know, I, I mean, he specializes in big groups of heroes, uh, all really well-drawn, big cosmic stories. And we start this issue with the splash page of, of, Metro, of uh, Metron from the New Gods in his Mobius chair, flying through the inside of a boom tube. 
and the way he, you know, Kirby, Kirby dots abound and like cosmic cracklings and weirdo planets and stuff. I mean, Perez really brings it. Then we get this giant double page spread, which through the exposition of his own thoughts, the giant um, chain of thought, thought balloons, <laughs> uh, Metron, you know, pretty much goes over everything that happened in the past two issues uh, of this crossover. And in, in typical uh, giant team crossover style, the uh, heroes have broken up into smaller groups. Uh, each are uh, doing different actions against Darkseid or on Apocalypse. Because, uh, dun dun dun, Darkseid is back. Dun dun dun. Uh, after, of course, being dead again, he has come back and his latest nefarious plot is to substitute um, Apocalypse for Earth 2. He's going to just transport Apocalypse where Earth 2 is, thus destroying Earth 2 and all of its inhabitants and replacing it with his hellhole of a planet but um we have these uh, different groups of characters that have broken off to accomplish different tasks to, to try to stop this from happening uh the first group we see is the parent the grouping of batman the earth 2 huntress who is the daughter of the earth 2 batman so it's kind of like batman's hanging out with his own hot daughter which is weird and doesn't, doesn't uh, she call him uncle bruce yeah she refers to him as uncle bruce but it's just Kind of weird, and uh, <laughs> Mr. Miracle, aka Scott Free, one of my favorite DC characters of all, all time, the master escape artist who, oddly enough, based on Jim Steranko uh, in real life, uh, who's also worked as an escape artist, and uh, they are sneaking into Darkseid's palace, and Darkseid is there with his pimp cape uh, coming down the stairs with uh, some of the members of the Injustice Gang of Earth 2, the, uh, the Shade, the Fiddler, and the Icicle. Um, but we get this great splash page, uh, Crisis on Apocalypse, and before Crisis on Infinite Earths, the term Crisis was usually um, relegated to these JSA JLA crossovers, like Crisis on Inf or Crisis on Multiple Earths. I think was the first one. Crisis in Time there was uh, was the one with the Legion, I believe. Uh, this one is called Crisis on Apocalypse or Dark Side Rising. Which you know sounds like a you know, metal album or whatever, <laughs> but as I said, Jerry Conway writing and George Perez, Frank McLaughlin artist, um, and this is like I said, early Perez before his uh, Marvel work and before Teen Titans and before. I think this is after his or after initial his Marvel work. This is at this point he had already done the Avengers and the Fantastic Four on oh, right. different length runs and uh, Logan's Run, which yeah, is had... we, we, in last week's episode we or two weeks ago we had talked about that. Oh wow, I missed that one. Logan's Run. I, I, I'm sorry, my timeline's out of whack here. That's absolutely. okay. But uh, it's George Perez. What more do I need to say, really? And a giant cast of characters, which he excels at. And you have the, the George Perez detail, I mean, everywhere, even in this page, you know, with the, all the art, the, uh, the, the carving in the stone, the stonework, even the floor, you know, the floor stones are, are detailed in. I mean, that's so Perez. Um, the three of them, Batman and Miracle, Mr. Miracle and uh, Huntress over here, Darkseid's plan. Darkseid crushes a flower to show what a badass he is. <laughs> he uh, he turn, turns to the Injustice Society guys who are ostensibly his allies in this. Uh, you know, they're gonna, Darkseid, of course, promised them Earth 2 if they help him. And they've frozen uh, Firestorm, Power Girl, and Orion in a giant block of ice, of course. And uh, um, Darkseid is mad, gets mad at them for because you know Orion is uh, actually his son, and blasts them into Chamber 13, which is you know some really 
as we'll see later, a really strange box in the middle of a prison. Um, we see a lot of Kirby dots and a lot of dot smoke. Um, the guards ask if they should thaw his son out, and Darkseid's like, what, are you stupid? <laughs> and uh, he goes back to his giant trouble alert computer where he has a giant diagram of <laughs> of his plan. Um, I, mean, I, like, I like the third one where it actually shows the planet exploding. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like a giant pictogram in case he forgot his plan. Okay, <laughs> now what am I doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's like Apocalypse plus Earth 2 equals explosion. <laughs> it reminds me of that South Park thing where they steal the underwear. You know, step one, steal underwear. <laughs> step three, profit. <laughs> while they, uh, while Batman and Huntress and Mr. Miracle go to free their comrades, we switch to Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, Oberon, and the High Father. Um, we're trying to stop uh, they're, they're the recreation machine, which is the machine that Darkseid is using to move Apocalypse into Earth 2 spot. So uh, Dr. Fate and, uh, and Green Lantern and High Father fight a whole bunch of parademons. There's this really cool uh, panel that has a giant scroom uh, sound effect. I like really good sound effects. And plus, Hal Jordan uses a lawnmower at one point to go through the parademons uh, <laughs> as a construct, which is pretty funny. Uh, High Father goes after he uses his scroom powers kind of winded and more parademons are on the way we then cut to superman wonder woman and big barda in the dungeons of uh granny goodness uh with one of the orphans that they freed named crimson and uh, as they go into breaking the granny goodness's uh, uh center crimson goes to kill a guard and superman stops her and explains you know that's not what we, that's not how we roll you know we don't kill people um, so Superman rips off the door. We see Granny Goodness in mid-conditioning clash as all the kids like chained together. If you have ever read Mr. Miracle Number One, uh, that is, you know, it's almost a direct lift from that as far as the way they're chained up and everything in that room. Um, Granny Goodness, of course, yells for her guards to kill them. That doesn't quite work out so well for the guards, of course. They free the kids. Uh, Wonder Woman takes the whip out of Granny Goodness's hands. Granny Goodness tries to escape and runs into Big Barda, waiting for her in her escape route. Barda's not happy with Granny Goodness, of course. Uh, <laughs> and in Armageddon, which is the capital city of Apocalypse, by the way, um, in the Imperial uh, City, they have freed um, Firestorm, Power Girl, and uh, Orion. Uh, Firestorm and Power Girl are there to provide witty banter, and Orion is there to provide exposition. So... That's basically what happens there. They go down to Chamber 13 because they need more allies and they uh, uh, free the Injustice Society because, I mean, Scott Free is the you know escape artist, uh, the super escape artist. So him and Batman are able to break into this Chamber 13 and uh, free the Earth 2 villains um, whom they want to enlist as allies and stopping all this stuff. Um, we go back to Green Lantern and Dr. Fate and Green Lantern has now conjured up a giant fly swatter in order to take care of the Parademons. Metron, much like Watu the Watcher, sits on the sidelines. It's like, gee, uh, I really can't upset the balance. I can't do anything here. I, I could really help out, but but I can't. I can't upset the balance. You know, the whole, you know, the Watcher must not interfere. Or the from the Venture Brothers, you know, ignore me. That kind of guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the um the Power Trio break in on uh, um, Dark Side, Orion, Firestorm, and Power Girl. Um, 
Darkseid tries to use his Omega Beams, but Firestorm makes a little funnel and sends it back to him. Evidently, the power of funnels is Firestorm's to wield. Uh, <laughs> yeah, back. I wouldn't think it would be that easy to uh, to, to redirect a, a Omega Beam, but hey, if you could do it that easy, go for it. Hey, man. It, it serves the plot, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Darkseid reaches over to his throne and pushes a giant red button. <laughs> we then cut to um, the, uh, the the fight, which you know has kind of been dragging on with Doctor Fate and Green Lantern. And here comes the cavalry: Batman, Huntress, and Mister Miracle, and a whole bunch of other new Genesis guys like Light Ray and Bug, and some of the other New Gods characters. But uh, the um, the recreation machine fires, which means Earth 2 is doomed, uh, supposedly. And then uh, it turns out the beam of the machine is not directed at Earth, but instead at Darkseid's palace, at Darkseid himself. And he dies again for, what, the 20th time or whatever. And it turned out Metron, Mr. Non-Interference or whatever, just accidentally reprogrammed the recreation machine to zap Darkseid rather than Earth 2. So the entire power of uh, you know a beam that could destroy a planet was level on dark side and uh, it's all over as you said you know so that's it it's all over and then uh, Power Girl calls Firestorm a boy chick. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know if if you've heard, but that's one of my uh, pet peeves is when people use that because I don't know anybody under ninety who calls anybody boy chick. I know, let alone Power Girl. I mean. Yeah. I could, they're like one of the older heroes, you know, but yeah, I, I, that kind of did not sit well with me either. And thus is the end of a giant Crowd 3 uh, issue crossover. Interestingly enough, I read a rumor that, yeah, I think it was in Latino Review, that this was one of the uh, the series, that this three-issue arc was one of the stories they were considering for the Justice League movie, which would be incredibly stupid of them because they would have to introduce so many other characters from the new gods for it to make sense. Or, or they'd have to simplify it to the point where it won't be the same story, right? Or cut, yeah, cut everybody down or whatever. Yeah, you have a bunch of a bunch of amalgam characters, kind of. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that makes sense. If if you were saying maybe, if you were saying maybe doing your second or third Justice League, excuse me, Justice League movie, you could do that to introduce new characters for other movies. But I don't think you would want to make that your uh, intro into the world. Right. Right. But it, se- it seems like they're jumping headlong into this Justice League thing uh, and just and hoping just, that the story catches up with it. Well, I'm going to say they just announced a delay. Oh, because of Affleck? Until 2016. Is it, uh, Russ, is it spring 2016 now? I think it's April? No, May. It, they're May. going head-to-head, day-to-day with whatever Marvel movie is going to hit that May 2016 target. Yeah, I, I, I don't... You know, I, I, I never want movies to be bad i want you know i'm rooting for it to be good but i fear it won't i yeah i don't know what the scoop is because it was going to be july but if there's any shift in the schedule i was reading something on, on msn funny enough and and it rang a, pretty true that if the, if they were to slip into august they might as well just wait until the next summer because this movie in order to justify itself i think has to make a ton of money i mean this has to be a 600 plus million worldwide box office take given what it's probably going to cost to make. Oh, at least, at least that much. They're probably looking at Avengers money. They're looking at 900 to a billion, which, which is fine if you make that, but I don't think you can make the movie with the premise that you have to make that much. 
you know, because I think you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. Yeah, when you set the bar that high that you have to make that much. But I mean, I don't think they expected Avengers to make as much as it did. No. I mean, it could have made half as much as what it did and still been considered a success, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, it, I it, needed, the, it needed to make good money. It didn't need to make blockbuster money. But I definitely, just, think that, I definitely think that's the money they're chasing, though, with the DC stuff, for sure. I've, I've often said that I think that they should, you know, they should have their blockbusters, but they should try and have the occasional movie where story comes first and you have the smaller budget and, and you know, you could have more modest goals. You know, instead of making a $200 million movie every time out, maybe once in a while you make a $100, $100 million movie. And if, you know, if you end up making whatever it is, 150, 175 worldwide, you did okay. You know? I think, well, I think Marvel's approach with the two-tiered approach, like, okay, we have these characters that can sustain their own movies, like Cap and Iron Man and Thor, and you know, Ant-Man coming down the line, Guardians of the Galaxy coming down the line. Then, <clears throat> excuse me. Then we have other characters that probably aren't as well known, but could probably sustain a TV series. And now in comes the Netflix deal with Marvel for Luke Cage, um, Power Man, um, uh, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones, and Daredevil. You know, culminating in a Defenders miniseries at the end of that. Um, I don't know. And then on DC side, you have Arrow, you know, doing really well right. on TV. And they're going to bring in The Flash, I guess, as a pilot for um, a Flash TV series coming up. So, I mean, they could, they could work the two tiers. I mean, Marvel's doing it really, really smart right now. I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D. is like a good bridge, you know, between the two. And it's already owned by Disney anyway because it's on ABC. But, um... I really, you know, think the characters that probably couldn't sustain their own movies might be able to sustain a Netflix series. You know? But I, I fear that they might be putting too high of a budget, and therefore creating too high of a uh, of of an, a need to make money on Ant Man and Guardians of the Galaxy because I don't think those are necessarily characters that have a built in audience. You know, you. you your average yeah. non-comic fan isn't necessarily running out to go see those movies, and and you're gonna you're hoping the buzz from the other movies just kind of carries over and pulls them in, but you're not gonna have an automatic audience necessarily. So I think they would have been better better off really concentrating on script, trying to make sure you have a really good story, keeping the budget within reason, and then if it turned out to be a you know a huge hit. You know, all the better. But if it didn't, you could still make it profitable. I don't. I don't know if that's. You know, I don't think that's their game plan though, because it looks to me like they're sinking a lot of money into Guardians and maybe even into Ant Man with you know now putting Michael Douglas on board. You guys still there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Guardians will really be the tipping point though. If if Guardians does well. I think that'll be, you know, speak for another few good Marvel movies. But I think if it tanks, that might be the popping of the Marvel bubble. You know what I mean? Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't think it would totally drain Marvel. I think, that, but I think oh, they no. might be more inclined to just stay with the the surefire hits and not, you know, not be so quick to just expand. Yeah, or play it safe as far as if they're going to do something new to scale it back. You know, you're not going to see a new property. At 200 million budget, you're going to see new property at like 100 million and see how it goes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe more like the Iron Man approach, where they and not that they didn't spend a ton of money on Iron Man, but you know they spent a lot less on Iron Man than they did on Avengers or even Iron Man three. So, um, 
it, it's got, the Guardians is going to be really curious for me. Um, I'm really the, the, it's a big experiment, and I think they have enough in the war chest to warrant an experiment like that. I the uh, the footage that they had at the end of Thor from the Guardians. I tried to look at that and remove myself from it a little bit, remove myself from my background and say, if I weren't a comic fan and I was just a fan of action movies, would I be intrigued enough to go and see that? I think I would, but I could see people who aren't sci-fi fans saying, nah, that's not going to be my cup of tea. So I do fear for what that's going to end up doing. I, I think it's all going to hinge on Rocket Raccoon. If they can put that character front and center and make people look at that and go, now that's going to be pretty cool to see this wisecracking, uh, you know, smart mouth raccoon, which is kind of like an animated character in a live action movie, that will seal the deal with that, sh- with that show. If, if Rocket Raccoon works, then I think that movie is a runaway hit. If Rocket Raccoon doesn't work, then I think that movie's going to tank. Yeah, I, I could also see Groot being a little bit of comic relief in it at points too. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. You know, again, I, I'm I'm very big on script in these movies, and uh, lately I think Marvel has done well with it. But you know, I, I think Green Lantern is an example of a movie where they didn't really concentrate enough on the script, and that's why it, you know, why it was ended up being a failure. Yep. All right. Well. Uh, let's see, I had a couple of notes on, on this actual book that I was going to, uh, that I wanted to, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> I had my notes, I couldn't even read what I was talking about. First of all, I just love the artwork in this book. I think George Perez really brought it to this one, and, and I, I love the inking on it as well. I think it created kind of a, a dark tone, which really fit the story. Uh, it, it's... You know, a couple of, uh, you know, thicker, darker lines that really just made it shadowy. Uh, you know, I, I just, overall, I th- just thought it was great. I, I love uh, I love Dark Side with, as you called it, Jim, his pimp, his pimp cape. Uh, <laughs> I just think that's a really cool look for him. But uh, a couple of things uh, that I was looking at is, is that Earth 2 Wonder Woman or is that Earth 1? Because the way Perez drew the hair, it looks to me like it could be Earth 2. Uh, I think it's Earth 2. Let me check. Because uh, there's a roster here at the beginning. Saying who's from where. From the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, it is Wonder Woman of Earth 2. Okay, so... Yeah, I mean, I it, it's kind of a subtle drawing difference, just that he changed the hair a little bit, but I did pick up on that, so I guess that's uh, point one for him. Uh, I love the way he draws Superman, because he, he draws him... Kind of svelte. He doesn't have the barrel-chested Superman by any means, but he still looks powerful. Uh, I, I really think he, he he brings it with him, uh, and and I, I love the shot of uh, Big Barda basically looking down on Granny Goodness and ready to just open up a can of whoop ass on her. Just just a particularly uh, good shot as far as I was concerned. And I also like the fact that, that Perez did, as you made mention, Jim, uh, he had Green Lantern using different types of constructs. Uh, that was one of the big criticisms uh, when they went to the Kyle Rayner 
Green Lantern. They said, you know, yeah, Hal was always kind of un- unimaginative in what he did, but, you know, Kyle's a comic book artist, so we're going to show that he's got that imagination and we're going to make him uh, come up with some, you know, real interesting constructs. But I think the uh, lawnmower and the fly swatter in this were pretty interesting and, and well done. Yeah, it was kind of a little silver agey, but but fun. Yeah, exactly. It's it's it, it is silly. I I can't deny that, but I still thought it was cool. But it's just really, you know, just a good story. I mean, I, I'm I'm a big Jerry Conway fan. Uh, also, uh, I don't know the way he drew uh, Power Girl. Like it almost looked to me like from everything from them being in the ice and everything that her hair is kind of droopy and you know from having been all like wet and everything that that like. Just like I said, subtle things like that that uh, that he did a little bit differently to to show what was going on instead of just drawing her right on model. Right, or that when or when uh, Darkseid gets zapped by the big ray at the end, the way he has like his face drawn in profile, kind of like that weird Peter Maxi style. You know what I mean? Kind of it has the face and the body, then it's like three silhouettes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I. You know what? I didn't even notice that at first. But yeah, there's the one really large one, and then the body, and then a slightly smaller one, which I I didn't even realize. I thought that was just part of the uh, the explosion until you just pointed it out. That's really well done. Very cool. Perez. Then the very last <laughs> shot of the book, which I guess is that uh, who's that walking away? Is that Metron? No, Metron's still in his chair. Is that Orion? I'm not sure, but it it looks Steve Ditko-ish to me. That very last shot. Yeah, I could see that almost like Spider-Man walking away. No, I think that is Metron. Because in the panel before, he's still in the chair, though. Mm. That's the only reason I, I wasn't sure if it was him. Or oh, well, I guess it would be Orion then, because the only other two people there are Firestorm and Power Girl. So it must be Orion. But this did have like an epic feel to it, too. I, mm. I don't think it would be a good idea for them to make this the movie for exactly the reasons that we were just discussing, but... As an epic comic book, I loved it. Mm-hmm. And for anybody listening, I could not tell you which episode, but I suspect that uh, Scott Gardner and Mike Bailey covered this on Tales of the Justice Society at some point. So if you go to the Two True Freaks webpage and look up Tales of the Justice Society, you might be able to find the, their take on this particular issue, which uh, I may seek out myself. I'd be interested in hearing what they have to say. No doubt. There's a lot going on here for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine if they did it that they covered all three issues, which is just an extra added bonus. But I, I can't speak highly enough of the artwork in this. It's just the story is really good, but the artwork really brings it to another level. So uh, would how would you rate this one? I give this one an A, solid A. I mean, it's a good slice of pre-crisis um giant super team fun so i do i definitely give it an a i totally agree uh, i give it an a and i i'm i'm almost tempted to give it an a plus uh but i'm gonna hold back on that uh, i'm gonna just go with the solid a and and that's two out of three uh how about you russ uh, i give it a b plus i i think the art by perez definitely kicks it up you know where i think this would maybe be a solid b for me but the perez art definitely notches it up if to b plus if if not you know verging on a minus but i just i just love george perez i mean he's just 
a master and um, the sooner he can start doing more work uh, I'm, I'm really I'm really excited for, for the stuff he's got coming up uh, and uh, it just it just can't get here fast enough for me yeah I agree you know at New York Comic Con this year uh, if I understood correctly he actually had people taking numbers they no longer had a line for him they and, did uh, that at Wizard uh, at um, actually it's Comic Palooza in Houston where you go up and get a ticket and it was awesome because I went up and got a ticket and I just waited until they called my, you know, to they were at my number or higher. And when they hit it, I just went into line and it was a $40 donation to the hero initiative. And he drew something on my jam piece. It was, it was awesome. Mm, I'd love to get some original Perez, uh, get a Perez sketch. Uh, I, I had gone to a show two years ago, a, a smaller show, the, uh, also, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but it doesn't really even matter. Uh, and Perez was the, well, actually, Stan Lee was the main attraction, but he was, you know, basically either you paid to go see Stan or you didn't see him at all. Uh, but Perez had a had a table, and there was a line running around the entire con of people waiting to meet and talk with Perez. Yeah, he's almost always the Pittsburgh con. It's always he always draws a crowd. He always has a long line. Yeah, and and. He's a guy who, you know, I mean, he's been doing this now for whatever, 35, close to 40 years. And uh, I don't think he's really lost a step. When when he draws a book, it, it really looks awesome still. Oh, yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right. Anybody got anything else on this one before we move on to our Marvel? No. I'm good. All right. Well, Russ, you got our Marvel today. So, so have at it. Stay- Hopefully I stay intact here and we don't have to, to have too many glitches in my internet. Well, but uh, I'll keep track. If we lose you, I'll uh, I'll be able to tell you where you, where we lost you, and you could just pick it up where you left off, and then I'll clean it up later. Perfect. Um, so my pick is Uncanny X Men number two hundred five from uh, May of two thousand of two thousand. Well, I wish um, May of nineteen eighty six, and uh, so this is a part of the big Marvel twenty fifth anniversary celebration that was going on this one isn't one of the the fancy covers but this was um an issue that for me is probably one of my favorite single issue comics of all time i mean it's it's a one and done it's a standalone uh and the the most the biggest thing with this one is the art is done by barry windsor smith and he also actually did the story so claremont had kind of plotted it out and he was he, he kind of uh laid the story beats out for for this issue um, but Barry Windsor Smith did the art and, and the actual dialoguing and coming off of so John Romita Jr. is my favorite X-Men artist of all time. And seeing Barry Windsor Smith do this was a pretty big departure. Um, he'd already done a couple issues at this point. The life death issues were his as well. Um, but this is just a, this is like I said, his style is just very fitting with with the story that's being told. Uh, this issue is pretty significant because. This is the first appearance of Lady Deathstrike, and uh, so this is kind of her origin and story. Uh, that's that's told pretty subdued. I mean, it's not. It's. It, I mean, while it's front and center in the story, they don't make such a big deal about her as a character. It's it's almost kind of like you you would assume who she is and and what's going on. Um, and it 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 starts off in the body shop, and Spiral is one of the major characters. So again, she's part of the Mojoverse. Um, and and the, basically the story starts with her creation and turning into just a normal human 
into this somewhat cybernetically enhanced person where her limbs all have a lot of cybernetics on them. She's been given adamantium as well, so she, her, her hands and her fingers. She's got these crazy long uh, fingers that are blades uh, of adamantium so she can match Wolverine up. And then she has these three cyborgs that, that are working with her. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of cool because at the beginning, it, their stated mission is to go after and kill Wolverine. And then once her mission is done, she expects to be turned back to in, into a normal human, uh, which anybody following the X-Men for as long as they have realized that Lady Deathstrike never was turned back. And obviously Wolverine is still alive. Um, but they make a big deal out of that in the story. Uh, then we jump forward a little bit and we get Katie Power, who is a part of, a part of Power Pack, which at this time in the Marvel Universe, Power Pack was a pretty big title um, and, and pretty popular. It was like the, the a, a, I guess, a children's version of the Fantastic Four is probably the best way to explain it. Um, where it was like four kids that each had uh, powers that were given to them by an alien and they hid them for a while from their parents and had all kinds of crazy adventures. Uh, Franklin Richards was kind of inducted into their little group from time to time as well. Um, and Katie Powers off in the city uh, doing some shopping uh, and looking at Christmas lights and doing caroling. And it's, it's like this huge blizzard that's taking place. And right in the middle of all this, we see this battle breaking out between the cyborgs and Lady Deathstrike and Wolverine. And it's kind of cool because we, we find out early that the team is going after Wolverine and then we we don't actually see the battle take place. It just it, we jump right in, and Wolverine shows up in front of Katie Power, and his costume is al- is almost completely ripped off. I mean, he's got his boots and he's got like you know where his his shorts would be, um, but he's completely bloodied up and cut. Uh, and the cool thing what they did about a lot more with Wolverine back then is when he was gravely injured, um, a he didn't heal in five seconds. Um, it, it took a lot. Yeah, it took a lot longer for him to kind of come back from that. And uh, he also would go feral, so he would just completely lose his his mind, and and just just go berserker when he was gravely injured. And he comes across Katie Power, who recognizes him. He's all cut up. Uh, Katie Power separated from uh, the lady that she was there with. Uh, this blizzard is just raging uh, through the city. And Katie's just trying to get Wolverine out of the way and out of harm's way so he could kind of uh, take time to heal up. And so we get several pages of the story. uh, And like I said, the art for me is just fantastic because you get these these awesome depictions of Wolverine, very almost like Hugh Jackman-ish in Wolverine where the hair is not quite very, very evocative of his, at least his hairstyle and and his his overall look of the recent The Wolverine movie more so than than the previous. and, and so the story, like I said, just goes several pages of them getting away. And finally, they're able to get enough space between uh, Wolverine and, Kate, and Katie Power and his pursuers that Wolverine kind of gets his senses back and he's, he's, he kind of understands what's going on and he's healed enough to, to fight back. Uh, and he does. He takes out the cyborgs. Uh, and then him and Lady Deathstrike have this big back and forth, uh, a lot of dialogue, very Claremont-ish in its uh, a dialogue, especially during the fighting. Um, and we find out that um, that Lady Deathstrike's father was the one that kind of invented the adamantium process, and he was kind of like, he was involved in it for sure. And he was also kind of a failed World War II kamikaze pilot, so 
the wool, the the adamantium bonding process was kind of like his redemption, um, and the fact that it only worked on Wolverine and nobody else, and he was a part of that. Um, Lady Deathstrike feels like he he shamed her family, and and by by proving that it could be it bonded to Wolverine, it almost like invalidated a lot of his work, and so her family name was was destroyed, and so that's why she's kind of got this mad on for. Uh, for Wolverine and and the two of them just kind of go back at it and we get so we get a lot of this back and forth on the fight is uh, these these awesome widescreen panels of them going at it and there's one like at the bottom of page 19 that's just a close-up of Wolverine's face and it's like got a bunch of blood on it and is gritting and showing his teeth Uh, so the battle pretty much finishes off with Wolverine taking out Lady Deathstrike and again, the the art is just spectacular. Where we see one panel where she's laying on the ground, she's got like tubes and wires and stuff all hanging out of her. Uh, it looks like part of her, part of her spine is extruding out of the back of her uh, back. And uh, she wants Wolverine to show her mercy and kill her. And uh, he basically says that she needs to earn it. And he sheathes his claws and walks away. Uh, so it's pretty awesome. After that, he walks back to Katie Power. The two of them kind of reunite. He thanks her for basically saving his bacon, and uh, he walks her home, and the two of them just kind of walk off into the snow. End of issue. This was a cool story. I never read this one before. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. This is, you know, I, we were talking earlier how I stopped in the mid-'80s or so. I know I had picked up issue 200 uh, with the trial of Magneto, but... Uh, but sometime between 200 and 205 is when I stopped, I guess, because I never read this one before. And uh, it's it's a good it was a good story. I, I like you know I love Barry Windsor Smith. I, I yeah. Uh, I, just as as a general rule, everything he does is gold, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's it, this the artwork is very reminiscent. We did an issue not that long ago uh, with Iron Man where he had kind of a dreamscape issue following some armor wars thing that had, that they had going on and uh it really reminds me of the same type of artwork story-wise it almost seems fitting that it would be coming from the guy who drew the weapon x series i guess it deals with wolverine's history so much i totally understand what you mean there yeah and the whole thing with wolverine getting the adamantium and now lady deathstrike getting her adamantium uh it, it really seems to fall together well and it seems like it, you know, it's well, it's good, good that they had the same guy doing both. Now, this would be before the Weapon X storyline, right? Yes, yes. So, yeah, so he, it's almost like he built on that to do this. Oh, yeah. he built on this to do that, rather. Excuse me, I got it backwards. Right. Uh, one, of the, I'm trying to think now. What I, what I, uh, I, I, I really liked the mood lighting on the cover of it. The way that they, uh, they. They did it almost like kind of the monotone with the purple and pink, or you know, if it's not monotone, if it's two colors, I guess so. But duochrome is 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 the cover by Smith also because it does look like it. I think it is, yeah. Okay, I, I like what you talked about with the, with the healing factor. How how you know he had the healing factor, but it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as as prevalent and it wasn't as dramatic. That you know it, it took time for him to heal. Yeah. You know, it, it gave the story more of a weight to it when he got injured. You know, you didn't just feel exactly. like, well, you know, you chop off his head and it's just going to grow back like the right. guy in uh, Men in Black. The claws in it almost look like he has bone claws. Yeah. Which yeah. this is Smith... before that storyline. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they, they even say they gave me the claws. So at this point, I mean, that was the big reveal was even he didn't remember uh, that they were a part of him. So, 
Yeah. I I I, I like the way the story kind of flows. It, 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 it's almost like you said, it, it's it's a big issue. It's it's significant with Lady Deathstrike, but there's almost a subtlety to it. it they're not hitting you over the head with it. It's it's it, the story is almost muted, and and like you said, it's it's not so much Claremont writing as it is uh, Barry Smith laying it all out and putting it together, and then having Claremont script it after that. Yeah, sometimes Claremont yeah. stuff can be really dense. Uh, especially if you go back and read it now, it seems like in comparison to some of the writing we, we oh, yeah. do now, mm-hmm. super dense and super exposition heavy or whatever. And and Barry Windsor Smith is such a good visual storyteller; you don't really need that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it, you know, again, all, all all three of the books have this just kind of elegance to them in the way that they're presented, the story and and the 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 meshing of the the word and the and the picture. Uh, and there's something again about Barry Smith's art style that that just I find so appealing, and it isn't normally my style. I like a much cleaner style generally, and yet I, I find this appealing. It, it almost goes against the grain for for what I would normally like, but uh, it it just looks so rich to me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. There's a lot of chaos, you know, with all that snow and the wind and, and just the way these cyborgs are drawn with all these wires and tubes and stuff hanging out. It's just very chaotic. Mm-hmm. And then the way he plays with the lighting and different shots and, and uh, yeah, I mean, could he draw any more blood in this thing? <laughs> yeah. Just overall a really good story. Yeah. I, I, think you you know you guys both picked winners for today uh how would how would you rate this one russ uh for me total a plus uh like i i said at the beginning this is uh you know done in ones are hard to come by these days for sure even back then claremont kind of told a flowing story so this like some of his other books that windsor smith has kind of come in and done were these one and done departures that just i think this is like a timeless story that'll uh you know kind of stand on its own and the art is just Phenomenal. I mean, just just absolutely fabulous. I definitely give it an A as well. I love Barry Windsor Smith as much as the next person who enjoys the visual arts. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know. It's I uh, this whole the whole period of X Men Claremont for me is real watershed for me because it's one of the first books I ever re- remember uh, really really enjoying was the you know the Claremont Burn Run of X Men and then uh, you know collecting from there. So, uh, you know, this is a definitely part of that for me, um, you know, or soon not part of that, but, you know, afterwards, definitely within my kind of, you know, X-Men that I read and followed and collected. So um, definitely an A for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with the borderline B plus, A minus for me. And, and, it, and believe me, that's not meant to be a slight on the book in the, at all, because I think it's, it's really well done. Uh, I... Uh, I'm looking at this now, and what what occurs to me is I'm almost seeing this as the first step, you know, this among others, not necessarily that this is a uh, landmark issue, but I'm seeing this as like kind of the step between the Bronze Age and the and the modern age. It, it's you know, if you went back ten issues, you're in the Bronze Age, and if you go forward ten issues, you're in the Marvel in the modern age, and, and uh, it it it's almost like the beginning of stories getting more uh, sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's, it, it really is well done, and it's just like I said. I, to me, all, all three books will win us today, and and I can't always say that. <laughs> every yeah, once no, in a while, every once in a while, we pick one, and and the the, the fun of it is is ripping it to shit because it turns out that the book is <laughs> terrible. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I I would recommend anybody listening to this pick up any of these three books and and run with it because they're all really good. Anyway, uh, I want to thank you guys for coming on. I, I really enjoyed having a chance to talk to you guys, and uh, I definitely, uh, if you're game, I would love to have you back again. Yeah, hopefully my uh, internet will be a little more stable. Uh, so I apologize for that. So yeah, uh, I, I'd hope, I will, but that's you know we. We understand that that's not your uh, doing, so not a problem yeah. there. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get you on our side of the fence too, for sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Great. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.